Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we're going to dive into an interesting topic and standard all around decentralized identity with Dr. Joanne Friedman. And man, this was this was a wild ride, Ethan. I thought I knew something about it, but she really, uh, she showed my ignorance a little bit there. <laughs> and, and mine as well, Ned. Uh, Dr. Friedman goes deep on things related to Web3. This whole thing, the, our main topic here, decentralized identity and what it means, and entertained all of our questions and just answered them with more information than we could have possibly hoped for. She was an outstanding guest on this very interesting topic that I, I kind of didn't see coming, but it feels like it might be the next big thing, Ned. It's certainly going to inform some of the next big things as maybe a substrate, but we'll get into all of that in the episode. So enjoy this episode with Dr. Joanne Friedman, CEO and Principal of Smart Manufacturing for Connected Minds. Well, welcome to the show, Dr. Joanne Friedman. Can you tell the lovely folks that out there a little bit about yourself and what you've been working on lately? A little bit about me. Well, Einstein and I share two things in common, dyslexia and very bad hair. So with that, <laughs> I will tell you that, you know, my whole career, I actually had a manager at one point who walked into my office and said, oh my God, what happened? Like, you know, was a, a finger in the socket kind of thing. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, we kind of need a DEI initiative in this company, but I won't go down that road. Um, my career has been most of my life. Um, started very young, worked for IBM, moved into the industrial world of manufacturing. So many, many years later, and too many to count or to say out loud, I would say you can take the girl out of the factory, but you cannot take the factory out of the girl. So a lot of what I do in my practice, I'm the practice lead for uh, uh, smart manufacturing and industrial engineering for Connected Minds, which is a very unique advisory practice, um, is that I work with a variety of different technologies. And I bring things like Web3 into manufacturing and decentralized ID as a way to identify sensors and actuators and things that go bump on the floor and robotics and things of that ilk. So it's a very interesting world because um, a lot of the customers are very large manufacturing organizations or very big tech companies that want to sell to them. And, you know, that's kind of like chalk and cheese, oil and water, vinegar and whatever. Um, so it's interesting to see how the very cusp of emerging technologies can impact whole industries. And that's what I've been focusing on of late. Very interesting. And yeah, I've encountered that in some of the consulting work I did. The clash between the IT group and the OT group, the operational technology uh, they did not often see eye to eye on just about anything, except they neither of them like developers. I think that was, that was the well, comment out there. You know, it, it's really funny that you should say that because um, as a former Gartner analyst, but also a former CIO, I had to deal with that on a daily basis of not only developers complaining in OT that they couldn't get the attention of IT, but also the IT folks going, shadow IT, skunk works. If I find one more test engineer on the shop floor sticking an RS-232 cable into something that they shouldn't, I'm going to have that person, you know, bleeped and thematically <laughs> uh, <laughs> erased from all, all parts of the organization. And you have to remember, you know, when you're sitting in a global manufacturing organization where you've got like 
factories in, you know, Timbuk3, uh, two factories split by a mountain range that are both related to each other and trying to converse. And you've got OT on one side and IT on the other. And the uh, norms and routines of IT in different countries is absolutely amazing to study even by itself. Um, you, you're going to always have a clash. And even now, um, I refer to them as the chalk and cheese of the enterprise because they'll never get along. The best you can do is sort of go, okay, from the top down, here's the big corporate initiative we all have to support, sustainability or customer experience. So try and bridge the gap a little bit. And DevOps is one way to do it because OT folk who are devs and IT folk who are devs speak entirely different dialects and mm. languages. So just the learning curve, it's kind of like, um, maybe you should do this over shots. <laughs> you know, one of mine and one of yours and one of yours and one of mine, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's 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 a very interesting world. Yeah. And especially with DevOps, as a matter of fact, just to that point, I had a very briefly quick conversation with the folks at Mesa this morning, which is an organization that I belong to for um, manufacturing execution and where IT meets manufacturing. And we were talking about digital twins and cybersecurity. And the uh, point of the discussion was really around how you secure a factory floor now, because in 2022, 50% of the, all the cyber attacks were in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And that's not good because your widget may come out looking like a fidget. And that's not good if it's going into an airplane. On factory floors because of IoT or IIoT devices or? Yeah, because, well, two two parts of it. One, and, and that's a really good question. Part of it is the devices themselves, the sensors, the actuators, whatever you're adding on. But think about the fact that manufacturing spends huge CapEx dollars on equipment, not OPEX dollars. Mm -hmm. So once it goes in, it's going to be there for, at least one generation, if not five. Right. And maybe and, or maybe not well-maintained as far as its software base. Well, the software base is actually coming from the OEM that supplied you the equipment. Yeah. Right. And that's proprietary. And they're not really willing to share that, well, gee, we kind of built this on XP <laughs> or Win95 <laughs> or some disty of Linux that nobody's ever heard of. And they're not going to share that with you. So how do you protect it? How do you protect that piece of equipment? And this has now become a major issue because when you put a CLI in front of it or something, you know, like a UI where, where the devs are working with it, where people are working with it, you basically open this giant back door into the factory floor, which if not segregated and separated from the other networks in the enterprise kind of says, oh, I don't need a phishing attack. I can just launch malware from here and watch it permeate <laughs> through the ERP and the MES and the PLM system and oh. eventually hit somebody's desktop to which that person will get nailed for having malware on their computer by IT, but nobody's monitoring the OT side of the house for how risk averse are you and how protecting of your threat vector are you. Mm -hmm. And remember, different pieces of equipment in different lines on in different cells on a shop floor there could be a hundred of them if it's a giant factory you know think mega million of of square footage so from that perspective 
that's really important to pay attention to. And that's where something like DID, decentralized ID, can be used to give each piece of equipment and each sensor their own digital identity, their own decentralized identity. And think about that in the context of the real world. If you're Boeing or some big airplane manufacturer and you've got outsources all over the world, wouldn't you want your parts to have a URI that was unchangeable? That well, would be a good thing. Let's back up a second and define some terms here. Because sure, talk about Web3, but bah, let's not talk about Web3. Let's dig right into the idea. <laughs> right? Sorry. No, no, no. I, I like the way that you introduced the, the concept uh, by highlighting some of the security concerns that go on with OT, especially as, you know, the trend that I saw was the OT folks wanted to bring more systems online to gather more information from them to do interesting things. And maybe it wasn't the OT group that was leading that effort, but there was the data scientists that were like, I want more data. So bring it online, ship that information up to some sort of data warehouse where I can do interesting things. But then that introduced the fact that these systems that were never meant to be connected to the larger world were now connected and, and not secured for it. But Let's talk about DID. So in, in a nutshell, what is the elevator pitch for DID and what is it? Okay, so a decentralized ID is basically a URI. But the way I like to think about it, and this is a weird kind of analogy, but I think about a DID the same way as I think about a tattoo. Hmm. And no, I don't have any. But I look at it like a tattoo because it starts with a basic shape, right? An outline of one part of the design. The minute that needle hits your skin, it is permanent. You might change it later, but it's always going to be there because if you do change that original shape later on, the ink is going to be different. The penetration of the needle will be a little bit different. The coloring will be a little bit different. So you're always going to know that that shape is actually there. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, you go for some laser treatment that erases the whole thing, in which case, you know, it's not so permanent. But if you go on the basis that a tattoo is meant to be permanent, then the DID is that basic shape. And then you build off of it using different methods and different ways of processing. You say a leaf from the shape of a, a circle that leaf sprouting out to be, let's say, it's the design of a tree, has a branch. Well, the branch may, may, may have one method. The leaf at the end of that branch may have a second method. You may be able to drop a leaf and have a bare branch. You may be able to add leaves. Each of those leaves may have different methods, different uh, documents that they're identified with that URI, but the one basic shape, the circle, and the outline of that circle have not been changed, will never be changed, unless you actually allow a controller, which is another part of the DID, to make that change. So, 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 so Joanne, before we, before we go on here, the DID can be used to identify what? Is it me as a user? Is it an object? Is it other things? I was going to get there. <laughs> so the DID can be anything. It can be your glasses. Yeah. It could be your beard. It could be the shirt that you're wearing. It could be uh, your driver's license. 
your social security number. It could be your bio or your CV. It can be virtually anything. As long as you're attaching a universal identifier to a digitized asset or a digitalized asset, then you can locate it. And you can do it through a QR code. You can do it through the web. You can through it, do it through a tour. You can even do it through um, an IP address. There's a lot of ways to skin that cat. The methods of defining the DID, method is the second part of the equation. So you have the first part is the URI, which never changes unless a controller does that. And I'll come back to that in a second. But Ethan's beard could have a different DID from his glasses, from his um, iPod earphone, uh, from his shirt, from his chair, from the house that he lives in to the car that he drives. And each of those, because they're specific identifiers, together you could get some sort of a portrait in the regular web, right? Passwords and you know whatever. You can aggregate the data. Google owns your data anyway. So does Facebook or Meta or whatever you know big kahuna you want to talk about. They can aggregate all those little pieces together that you've left called your digital dust all over the internet and basically figure out who you are, where you live, what that house looks like, what the shirt looks like, what the beard length happens to be on what day, uh, whether you changed your prescription for your glasses yesterday or two years ago. And by the way, they're tracking your um, earpiece with GPS. <laughs> okay, so so I, I think I'm getting the ID part of it, but now decentralized. We've mentioned Web3 and now we're saying decentralized. Plug those pieces in so we get that part. Okay, no central repository. So OAuth is a way that people normally create apps and web pages and whatever. O Not willingly, OAuth. says anyone who's ever worked with OAuth, but yes. Pardon? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not willingly, anyone that's worked with OAuth, it's ugly, but uh, but yes, uh, familiar well, yes. with OAuth. <laughs> okay, it's one example, Ethan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Choose a different scab to pick at. <laughs> it could be OAuth. It could be anything else. The point is you have a central repository, and that's an accumulation of everybody's user ID and password or their badge number when they swipe into an office, if they still go to an office, or your address on Google, right? If you Google a business and it comes up with the address, well, you're basically telling the world, go hack that business. Which is why ours, for example, has the number blacked out. Took six months to get Google to do that, but they finally did. Um, that being the case, everything is centralized. And so whether it's um, an application or it's um, a badge number, it's all kept in a database. It's all in a central repository. So remove that from your brain. And now say, I am who I say I am. Nobody's carrying this data except moi. I can put it in a hard wallet, a cold wallet. If I'm doing crypto, I can put it on a piece of paper. But nobody owns that data but me. Why is it important to Web3 or a decentralized sort of ledger technology? The reason being you have individuals who are as a group providing support, providing security, providing horsepower to something. Uh, but each of them 
has to have a shared trust with the other. There's no one repository fits all. There's no one size fits all. It's a very interesting dynamic to say, if I choose not to trust Ethan after this broadcast, I can cut him off, Mm. never to be connected to again. Mm. And the same holds true with Ned. And they could do the same to me if I'm not a good girl and don't answer their questions properly. But so the decentralized part implies a okay. Well, let me just back up a step. If I have a centralized repository for IDs, that is my authority. I have defined this central repository to have authority to define IDs. In a decentralized model, it's the trust model that could be arbitrated by a, a ledger. In this case, a blockchain. It well, it doesn't have to be a blockchain in a mm-hmm. decentralized ID, right? Uh, people often mistake that you can't do this without having a blockchain. That's not to say that I'm anti-blockchain. I think DLT is great. I'm just a little nervous about crypto, but that's beside the point. Um, That being said, I've seen a lot of applications of distributed ledger technology for things like um, a private cloud between a manufacturer and, and their most trusted suppliers, let's say or their most trusted customers. And you can use blockchain in the enterprise for those kinds of purposes. But from an authority perspective, the only thing that I would disagree with Ethan is that a centralized authority is defined by, it can be defined by a rule or a policy. It doesn't necessarily have to be created by a human, right? Historians are a great example of that. They're storing a lot of data, but it's just the way the historian is. It's not, it's central, but it's actually decentralized at the same time. And I just want to make sure that people understand that it's not, you know, today I am goddess and I will define a centralized repository and I will only give permissions to those who I feel deserve the privilege, or I will revoke some from those who are, you know, bad boys or whatever, or bad girls and not let them play in my sandbox anymore. The real advantage of the decentralized ID is uh, what I would call a stateful trust. Now, I know I'm not using stateful in the right way here, but a stateful trust says, today I trust you and tomorrow I don't. And I have that choice. You brought up trust a few times. And yes. that, that begs the question, how does one establish trust if you don't have a central authority? So if I have a DID and you want to verify it in some way to show that you can trust my DID and what I'm claiming, how does that trust work? Well, the DID, the URI of the DID basically attaches to a document or an artifact or something else. And from that perspective, the document is being described in the DID. So you can immediately verify whether that's come from a trusted source because I can say, okay, here's my university credentials and it's my version of my university credentials, not directly coming from the source, meaning the university. Right. So that trust relationship is described in the second component of the DID, the subject, which is kind of like metadata. It describes what the artifact is, where it came from, Ultimately, to your point, though, you're looking for a a true verifier. Mm. And some of those, there are agencies that will verify. Uh, In your country, the U.S. government is a verifier. 
right? Because it issues your social security numbers and it does them at birth. So the minute a birth document is registered, it's verified by the hospital, and then it goes into this centralized repository that then verifies that it's giving you a social security number and you go from there. So you can look at that as the verifier of source. Um, this gets into a longer discussion about provenance of documents and lineage of documents. And there are certain companies out there, especially uh, new ones that are coming up, startups that are actually in the business of doing that provenance and lineage to back up the credentialing of the verifier. I could self-verify. You could self-verify. Um, but there are certain organizations that are trying to get into this game and monetize it. Well, it feels well, like the certificate authority uh, issue that we've had forever. Yeah, it is. It's very similar in a lot of respects. The only difference is the fact that the certifier doesn't expire and it's tied to that URI, which never goes away. Right, the permanence of that URI is one of the verification capabilities in the DID. Right, there's three parts to the DID. There's the URI, there's the document that it's identifying, and the subject or the subject, and the um, uh, sort of metadata that goes along with that. And then there's the re resolver or where you have a controller who comes in and says, "No, I'm going to control this piece." not that piece, and only give you access to what's being declared by the metadata or the document, the subject. So Joanne is female. Not that you can argue that, but there are people who might want to change that. Mm -hmm. The controller will, will establish from the URI as part of the DID, do you have the ability to change that? Or do you not have the ability to change that? And that's also a part of the verification. It's I'm not trying to overcomplicate it. It does depend on how the methods that are used are defined, what you're defining them for, and how. So let's go with the example you were giving where a university has issued you a credential, your PhD, for example. Yep. And you want to prove to someone else that you have that PhD so that you know you're applying for a grant or a job or something sure. like that. So what would the DID issuance process look like if we wanted to have that credential live as a DID as opposed to today where you know hopefully they can just phone up the university and go, oh, hi, I have this person applying. Are they in fact a PhD? Oh, they are. Okay, great. You can't do that anymore, by the way. <laughs> no, no, no. Seriously speaking, you can't just call up because there's been so much fraud and so much fakery that the universities will say, well, you can send $50 to the transcript office and get a copy. Right. Hmm. And that's that's like their way of protecting that. But in in the same token, I would put point my URI to the university and have it resolve to the transcript office who would be charging me the fee because I'm giving out that URI and then make a fortune off of it. And then the document itself, the artifact called the, here's the snapshot of the actual dissertation or the credential would then come back. It would be resolved and it would say, you could download this here kind of thing. But the method is going to dictate how I do that. And there's over a hundred methods with DIDs, which is why one of my, you know, highlights or takeaways to developers is 
be very specific when you're doing the DID of what the method is you're going to use. Okay. So to play out the example, you ask the question, how would someone check? The URI would point to the document, which would be the transcript. The document would resolve based on the subject. Does she have a PhD? Here's the credential, right? The document describes what the subject is and how the subject could be used. That is done in a method. Okay. And then once you get there, once you get there and you're about to resolve, if you have a controller and the subject being the same, it just goes through. But if you have a controller interjecting going, who is the requiring requesting party, go check the IP address and make sure it's not, you know, um, Joe from Topeka, who has no reason to be asking versus a, you know, large tech provider that wants me to be their evangelist. Um, you can intervene there. Okay. And that controller then also regulates how the um, original URI could be changed or not changed. Let's suppose there was a change and I got another PhD. Well, then I would want it to resolve to the second one. So I would go back to the URI and make a change saying, now you have a fork. Here's your main one. It's never going to go away. But now you resolve to another DID that has a fork in it. One for, you know, Joe from Topeka and one from, you know, big tech company who wants an evangelist. But I can check that against IP or IP locations or device IDs even. It, it feels like a more robust uh, way to realize an NFT. Um, as if the, if the PhD certificate, the artifact was, if we yeah. compare that to an NFT, it feels like it's that model, but now with this much more robust security implementation layer that gives grants permissions and there's someone checking on the back end in a more detailed and controllable way than what we have with yes. NFTs. Yes, absolutely. And if I relate it to NFTs, I think I would say, well, you can use encryption. You can use a variety of methods or things that are buried within the methods. Again, I go back to choose your methods carefully. So let's assume that I had cryptography in there. Um, if I'm the NFT creator, I could embed um, some sort of cryptograph in my NFT that says it can never go to a competitor or it can never be copied, but it. I can also do another one that says the asking URL or, or the IP address that's requesting the URI, if I know this person, if I trust this person, I can then start releasing, yeah, I'm going to give you the URI for my DID. And this is partly how, uh, where I think NFTs have an actual different purpose than artwork or, you know, boring apes or whatever. Um, <laughs> I see them as being a way to collect the provenance of an object. So let's say I want to make sure that um, the food that I'm acquiring, let's call it meat, that the piece of meat that I'm acquiring from my grocery store has a little marking on the package or somehow, you know, not on the actual meat, but on the package that says 
I verified this was not fed, this cow was not fed antibiotic mm, in okay. a more secure way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like NFTs have a role. I don't liken them necessarily to QR codes because QR codes, even the 3D ones can be hacked and, you know, cracked. But an NFT where you have steganography and other cryptography embedded in it opens a whole new way to do fraud prevention and for drugs, for foods, for agribusiness, uh, carbon capture for mm. sustainability. There's a lot of use cases where an NFT could be used to supersede what we're currently using as G10, G10 barcode identifiers or even QR codes. So yeah, sorry for the segue, but that's where I see the power of the DID really starting to come into play. And I think it was very interesting how certain, if you are the person who owns the DID, you can grant somebody else permissions to inspect only specific aspects or, right. or properties of that DID rather than releasing all of your information. So if I had my own, if I had my medical records, let's say, encapsulated as, as a DID, and I get a request for access to that medical record, I could grant very specific access to certain things in that medical record without giving them the whole thing. And that, you know, limits the blast radius if that organization that's asking for that information gets hacked. Yes, they'll get some of my information, but they're not going to get everything. Whereas usually your entire medical history is stored on every medical organization that you end up talking to or going to. Dude, that is you such a I great example. This? Oh my word. Because now the form, it's, it's a form, a piece of paper that I hand to someone to give them permission or not permission to share medical information. What you've described is so much more graceful if I could do that. Sorry, I got yeah. all excited, Joanne, and I interrupted you. And you're the guest. You should say things now. Sorry. No, no, no. It's okay. Ethan. I call it digital redaction. I have a way to parse out all the information I don't want to share with someone. Period. Right. And to me, that is the ultimate in protecting myself, protecting my digital identity, protecting my personal identity, and not being subjected to credit card fraud or uh, misrepresentation of who I am or what I'm about. I can just say cookie maker. Good title. That's all you get to know. She <laughs> makes cookies and even vegan cookies, as you and I discussed, Ned. Um, <laughs> that's all I want to share with you, period. And I this gives me the way to say that's the only information people I don't want to know or people who don't know me and I know them get. She makes cookies. Done. And now I can say for government, well, here's a driver's license or here's a social insurance number or here's my, you know, to medical facility. Here's my blood type. That's all you get. Right. And the other thing that I, I think I read this in the, in the standard or someone brought it up is the fact that you can revoke that access. Yes, I can. And so can you. And, and especially for Ethan. Because he can erase the lines <laughs> on the piece of paper before he gives it to the person to say, yes, you can look at my my eye chart readings. Hmm. Right. But they don't need that information in perpetuity. 
So you could just say, you get access to this information for the next 30 days, after which you no longer, no longer, now they might store it on their local system, though I'm guessing with DID, you can put a method in there where it shouldn't be copied to the local system. Well, you can also embed a little malware if you really wanted to. <laughs> um, I actually did this um, to see if I could do it just, just for the hell of it or for the halibut, depending on where you come from. <laughs> I do like a good halibut. Yeah. Um, you you can sunset it. I mean, I love the notion of, I believe it was, maybe it was Mark Cuban who did dust, um, where your messages disappeared in a very specific period of time. When I uh, co-founded Your Secure, which was a mobile payment company, we, we had this wonderful feature that we built in um, where you only had access for the time that you made the payment and it would revoke itself in one minute increments after you process the transaction. That way you were never subject to a third man attack. So you would have to re-log in to the system and it wasn't a long login, it was just one key, but it would constantly sunset itself out. So your credentials were never available to the outside world, only in your phone and only for a very, very limited period of time. We didn't limit the number of times per hour or per day that you could use it to pay, just how long it was active. Because we figured out that the shorter, shortest period of time was in flight between you and the cash register or you and the internet. So if we could sunset it after that period of time, you were basically protected because you had no access. And neither did anybody else. So it's a similar paradigm. And this level of security and the fact that you own your data is so invigorating to me because I don't have to worry about trackers. Uh, Joanne, this feels like the future, um, but it also feels like the future, like this is not here today. Uh, so give us a status on, uh, is this technology we could leverage today? And if so, how widely deployed is it? If I want to, I mean, uh, in order for this to work, a bunch of people have to buy into the system and use it. So where are we at with that? Well, if you think about it, in some ways, we're already there. If you think about cryptos right? Cryptos are masses of people who may not know each other, come together to support a single idea, you know, um, Ethereum, Solana, you name it, whatever. So if you look at the validators, for example, they have a special stack that they have to use to be part of the validator community, which provides the security and validates each transaction is, you know, by the standard it's supposed to be. The boxes, the, the physical hardware that's used to do that, the configurations in them actually have a form of digital ID because you're registered as a validator. You have to have enumeration on the system as being a validator. And your trust relationships with other validators are based on something very close to DID. Um, it varies from crypto to crypto. There hasn't been a, a mass standardization there, but in principle and in concept, that's what's happening. So you're using it there. But um, from a more practical point of view, uh, you've got Doc ID, you've got um, the uh, Identity Foundry, you've got a lot of folks in groups that are pushing and promoting this. Banking and financial services will probably be first. 
I want to see it in personalized medicine and healthcare. Uh, our system being very different than yours, there are groups that are very active about using DID. Um, real implementations, private companies who I can't disclose, but there are implementations of it out there. Open source uh, options if we wanted to play with it? Uh, yeah, you can find some of the projects out there. Um, the Identity Foundry, I think, is one of the better groups. But if you look for the organizations, there are a lot of different projects. And it's really around the methods. Again, that's, mm. you know, I keep going back to that, not to harp, but just to say, if there's more than 100 different methods, you know you're going to find a project that's open source or available to look at with each of the methods that's been defined. And that number continues to grow. And refinements to the whole thing continue to happen. So I wouldn't, I, I, it's not that I don't want to give you a list, but I would be giving you a list that starts today and ends sometime tomorrow, the day before yesterday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> gotcha. Right. We'd started this conversation around DIDs in the context of manufacturing. Yeah. And enterprise. And I'd like to bring it back to that a little bit. So what are the use cases you're seeing, um, even if you can't say company names or anything, but what are some of the implementations or use cases that you're seeing at the enterprise level for the implementation of DIDs? Okay, so where I'm seeing it is bringing suppliers closer to the manufacturer. And that would be taking their product catalog, let's say, a supplier's catalog of goods, and giving each one a distinct DID and allowing it, that DID, to be the reference for a bill of materials. So they're hiding all of their proprietary design data and everything else. So instead of sending a, a, like a bill of materials would be a CAD drawing right, to the manufacturer. I'm the OEM. I want you to make my widget look like this. You know, and I'm basically not giving you pictures. I'm giving you specifications of each part of what that widget would look like uh, when it went or be like rather not look like be like when it's actually manufactured. So you can rapidly prototype and give me costing and all of that kind of stuff. Well, suppliers are not stupid people. They want to protect their uh, intellectual property as much as possible, because a lot of times that also includes pricing. So if they assign a DID to a product, call it a widget, a little tiny widget that's going to go into a sub-assembly sub of a quantum computer, they can take each widget or each screw or each chip or each piece of silicon and register that with individual DIDs and require that as something is being lithographed or manufactured later on in the production cycle, they can refer only to those DIDs and never give away any of their intellectual properties. Now, for manufacturers and suppliers that don't normally exchange data in a I trust you less than you trust me world, this gives them a way to put up a little bit of protection around both so that you avoid things like reverse engineering somebody else's product. Now, you know, that translates into gray market products. That translates into global issues between superpowers and decoupling of markets and things of that ilk. But if you start it small and start assigning 
um, something like a DID to a part in a catalog, then you can also say for this anonymized part that's only referenced by the DID, I want to capture the carbon footprint or the energy used by that widget when I'm making it spin. So it's not the horsepower of the engine that's making the widget spin. It's the material that the widget is made out of that may um, influence how fast an, an overall piece of equipment will function. If I go back to the quantum computer, the lithography on the uh, silicon that's used to place the transistors, resistors, capacitors, and every other piece of property. Um, if I then gave the DID to the piece of silicon, and that was my master reference, I could trace every single piece part that was then engineered and manufactured onto that piece of silicon. And if you've ever had a 3D printer, you know from experience that the boards that come with them, it's almost impossible to trace what connector came from what supplier to get the right driver because the one that they gave you doesn't work. Uh, it, it reminds me, Joanne, of how um, uh, food manufacturing is done, where there's lot numbers and you can trace back someone who has a case of botulism from something they ate. They can figure out the source of it through all that tracing. It also sounds like um, something that would map well to supply chain integrity. If you, we, yeah. you could, it's very similar methodologies, but you could use DID instead of some of the TPM and so on, or or in conjunction with. Well, you could, and not only that, but you know, we live in a time now where we need to consider things like cold transport, right? For vaccines, they mm -hmm. have to get into the right container at the right time. The temperature of the container that they're being transported in has to be maintained throughout the journey. Any change in that temperature can spoil a vaccine. So how do you trust the driver of the truck that's got the... Um, semi-container uh, attached to it to know that that person is going to keep their eye on the prize of the right temperature in the container at any given moment in the journey. Well, people are fallible mm -hmm. and GPS is fallible. And so are numerous other methods where you could find a way to pick it apart and find a vulnerability. Um, I will not divulge what who the companies and the transportation companies were. But during the pandemic, when vaccines were being rolled out, there were at least three instances where the logistics providers did not keep the temperature on track because they were going from cold to warm to cold or cool. And, you know, the fluctuations just on the fabric of the container, meaning the metals of the container, the aluminum, if it was in sun or versus shade, would, would fluctuate. And there were at least three instances where entire shipments of vaccine were spoiled hmm. uh, when they were on their way to people who desperately needed them. So I look at that and I say, this is the perfect way to do it. If every carton, if every vial had a DID, you could know by putting actuators or sensors or other kinds of metrology around the container or the individual vaccine, exactly what happened to it from the time it left the production floor to the time it got into your arm. Hmm. To me, hmm. that's the ultimate in supply chain security and in manufacturing quality assurance.
not to be conspiracy theory sort of thinking, Joanne, but is there are there folks who don't want DID to succeed as a technology? I could say the big tech companies because <laughs> they have their little walled gardens where they own a, all of our brain. And, and that that that's who leapt to mind um, the the. Apple, despite their claims of privacy, certainly know a lot about us. If you're in the Apple's ecosystem, and uh, and Google certainly, and and Meta, Facebook, you know those sorts of folks. That um, that's their that's their business in part is what they know about us. Uh, it feels like they maybe wouldn't want to get on board with this, and in fact might even get in the way of it. I'm sure that they probably would, and I don't want to be overly provocative or controversial, but didn't you guys just pass a law that said that some of the big providers can actually share data with the government? Not to be conspiratorial, of course. They've been able of to course. do that forever. Of course. <laughs> you know, I mean, we have a digital charter of rights up here. Um, I'm not saying that it's enforceable or it's not, you know, only a third of the way that it needs to go. Or am I that protectionist? But generally speaking, yes, there there are factions out there. But then there's also people like me who believe in embedded security in hardware because you can't hack it. Or look at DID and say, this is a solution to a jimungus problem, which is the 237 passwords that nobody can ever remember. You know, call it a Chrome commercial these days. But irrespective of that, you have these problems in enterprise. And also the release of people's passwords and their login credentials happens whether you're a small organization like we are or a jimungus one like ABB that just got hacked. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's a problem that needs to be solved. DID, yes, there will be detractors. Um, is it going to be a battle for supremacy? I don't think so, because I think that there's enough of a population in Gen Z and and the folks younger than I am, let's put it that way, because <laughs> um, there's too many categories now, and I just heard of a fifth one yesterday, um, who are much more, uh, becoming much more aware that their need for convenience and sharing data it needs to be rolled back a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, younger folks who, yeah, okay, I don't mind giving them a piece of my data if they're giving me something for free, like access. Or they're presenting me with some reward by giving them a credential. No, we, we need to take our privacy back. So I'm a proponent. Um, I also see that corporations writ large are facing so much in the way of extra cost for cybersecurity, some of which could easily be mitigated by having DID in place, that I sort of go, cost, benefit? Eh, yes, this is a no-brainer for me. Uh, why isn't every instance on, on a cloud using a DID? Hmm. Oh, cloud hacks are not so predominant. Really? She she kind of says with a silly grin, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it sounds like for the most part, uh, at the consumer level, people might not be directly aware of a DID, but they might end up using a technology that's built on the DID spec. Um, I would say anybody who's got a crypto wallet probably will be one of the first mm. to see it because even the even the case of the wallets are changing. 
you know, whether it's hot, a hot wallet or a cold wallet or, you know, a discombobulation of whatever kind of crypto's wallet per se, or even the NFT, um, Web3 is going to change how a lot of people view the world. And to your point, Ned, I think I'm beginning to see applications and developers looking at ways to use DID where they're they're not so much becoming the heroes of IT or OT, but rather to say, this is a solution to a problem that supports our view of the world around something like sustainability. This is now value-based and belief-based. So I think you're going to see an uptick in it across a wide swath of uh, company, excuse me, swatch of companies and industries. All right. Well, we have covered a lot of ground today. Uh, let, let's try to summarize things up for listeners. If there's three key takeaways you'd like our listeners to walk away with, what would they be, Joanne? Ooh, uh, the DID is three parts. Focus on the method. If you if you really want to make something long-lasting, immutable, and useful, whether it's a, for a consumer or an enterprise, focus on the method you use. The URI is easy enough to do. It's the method. And the method will dictate who later you can trust or not trust just by the way you create it. That would be number one. Number two, um, broad usability. Don't be afraid to embed it in an app because you don't need to have a big centralized stack to use it. This is designed for the edge, hmm. not for the monolith. And whether you're playing in the crypto markets or not playing in the crypto markets, Web3 isn't going away anytime soon either. So to me, Web3 and the edge are kind of synonymous. Not exactly, but pretty damn close because they both feature decentralized architecture or highly distributed architecture. So that would be number two. And lastly, I would say, listen to Ned and Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe me. Because <laughs> I talk about a variety of different topics and I do see um, sort of a convergence, no pun intended, to OT and IT of DID coming more into the mainstream over the next I would say 18 months. I think people are fed up with logins and passwords, number one, and cookies are going away, except the ones that I bake. And so, you know, from that standpoint, this may be your new step forward to freeing a lot of uh, wasted time in designing login credentials and uh, email address credentials and finding a, a better way around the spoofing and the phishing and the security side. But it's not just about security. It's about usability. And that's would be my last takeaway. All right. And and to your point, people should listen to you. Where could they go and listen to you or or read some of your writing? Okay. So to listen to me, uh pontificate, no. Um cloud 2030 every Thursday. Uh, we talk about a variety of different issues around technology. Uh, some of them, as a matter of fact, this Thursday in particular, we're going to be talking about trying to define an ontology for metadata and dark data. 
Mm. And part of the reason that we're doing that is because there is a need in the market. Um, other times we talk about a variety of different books and uh, technology topics that go anywhere from IAC and DevOps and platform engineering all the way to quantum and what that means. Uh, we've had a lot of discussions around ChatGPT and those implications. So Cloud 2030 is one. Coffee with Digital Trailblazers on Fridays, uh, which is designed specifically for um, C-level executives and their teams that are just embarking down the digital transformation journey, but have come from the Agile world. Agile, which seems to be kind of... Um, <laughs> in and of itself. So there's that. And then of course there's podcasts like yourself doing recordings with yourselves and uh, I don't know, um, IT visionaries. There's a lot of them out there. I'm going to be speaking um, at a Denoto conference on the 25th, uh, Fast Data Virtual Summit. Um, and I'm talking there about time to data, time to decision and time to value. The faster you get to the data, the better the decision you can make but you can also squeeze time out of that process. And it's not about think faster, but you can deliver more value more quickly because you can go down that road of faster time to data. So for devs, that means redesign or better design or just better support. All right, we will include links to as much of that as we possibly can in the show notes. Dr. Joanne Friedman, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, very precious time with us today on Day 2 Cloud. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. And I'm looking forward to Day 3, Day 4, and Day 5. <laughs> Thank you. And hey, <laughs> listeners, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, topics you want us to cover, guests you'd like us to have on the show, we want to hear about it. You can hit either of us up on Twitter. It's at Day2CloudShow, or you can go to our website, Day2Cloud.io, and fill out the fancy form there. If you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development and overall enlightenment. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.